0: So we're trying to get you into the uh, feel, the mood with that music, right? <laughs> the crazy thing is, the more I listen to that, the more I kind of want to do some kind of weird Mediterranean dance. <laughs> but I don't think that would, uh, one, be appropriate, two, you would, it would just not be appropriate. So <clears throat> so we're going to, next three weeks, we're going to look at this word, uh, oik- oikos. And uh, I'm sure most of you, uh, this minute you hear that word, you think of the grocery store, don't you? Walking through the dairy aisle and you see the, uh, the yogurt that Danon has now branded um, Oikos. Uh, hmm, I don't know how many years ago, but uh, it's a big deal. So we can't start a series on Oikos without at least having somebody having to do a blindfolded taste test for Greek, for Greek yogurt, Right? And um, so, Matt is, uh, he's volunteered. I don't know if he can see through this or not. No. Um, but uh, we've got some, how many of you like Greek yogurt? Oh, wow, a lot of you do. It, it does have a little te- different texture. So, Matt told me he's not a huge yogurt fan, so this might even be funner. Yeah. But um, we're going we're to go ahead and, s- we're going to give him uh, an opportunity to taste some of this yogurt and tell us what he thinks it is. So let me get a microphone so we can hear him. And don't gag on me, okay? All right, so here's the first one. And there's the cup. And there's a spoon in the cup, all right? So you go ahead and take a big, big... uh It's pretty plain. Pretty plain. Yeah. Maybe you need another taste. Oh. <laughs> Still tastes pretty plain. Nothing. Nothing. No hint of any kind of flavor. No. So you would not you would not say that that tasted like salted caramel. No. All right. Well, let's go on to the. That. that was salted caramel. <laughs> All right, let's try the next one. Okay. Yeah, we stirred this one up. Maybe that was the problem. So, here you go. Big, big. That one's got chunks of something in it. What 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 do you what do you What are you tasting there? There's definitely chocolate in there. Uh, Okay, kind of. Keep going. (laughs) Is it banana? Okay, so you're right. It's a blend of banana and something else. You're getting better at this. (laughs) Can you take another bite? Sure. (laughs) A hint of something else, right? I will say "Taste this banana." (laughs) Okay. So that was banana peanut butter. All right. You're getting a little better with this. Now let's try the third one. All right. All right. You're gonna love this one. I know you are. I love health food. (laughs) So there you go. There's the cup. Big, big gulp of this. What do you taste there? Lemon. Okay. Lemon. You're doing good. Anything else? <laughs> no. You want, t- you want to take another bite of that one? No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> Alright. So the last one I did, I messed with him. I've, it's key lime and I threw a bunch of coconut cream in it. And so I tasted it. It is absolutely gag awful. Yeah, but you did get the key line part right. Good job, man. Let's give Matt a hand for being willing to do that. (laughs) So the word oikos uh, basically means this, extended household. Extended household. Um, In... uh, any of you watched my Big Fat Greek Wedding? Yeah? Um, actually, there was another one that came out. Didn't really think I would like those movies. I think I ended up watching them with Nicole. And uh, actually, they're pretty funny. But um, you definitely would understand an extended household if you watched that movie, uh, those two movies. Because in the Greek culture... Um, Everything's extended, okay? It's not just mom and dad and Johnny and Susie and Tim. It's aunt, uncle, uh, cousin, cousin's friend. You know, all through that movie, you kind of get a sense of Greek culture. Like, they do everything together. It's not just a small thing. Friday night, uh, uh, dinner at somebody's house is not just a few people. It ends up being 20, 30 People. That's just the way that they do that in their culture, and um, you know, in English, when I say the word "household," uh, it cannot, it, uh, you know, con- connotes the, uh, the the nuclear family that we think of—husband, wife, couple, kids, uh, maybe a dog or a cat or whatever your preference is. In the Greek, though, this word does use a broader brush. It paints with a broader brush. It encompasses families, neighbors, co-workers, friends, uh, those who we come in regular contact with. Now to even understand this a little bit more, household in in Roman times, Greek times, um, it it, it looked like this. Parents lived, or people lived, worked, played, and worshipped in households that included more than just their family. Um, You're talking about you have a matriarch or patriarch. However, that has worked out, or maybe both. Um, people who have means, who have established a business, so to speak, and one or two, one or more adult sons uh, with their wives and children, daughters, same or uh, unmarried daughters, because obviously the daughters that would have married sons would be with uh, that other family. You have slaves, you have ex-slaves, you have artisans working in, in shops attached to the compound, so to speak. You have the Children of slaves, you have freedmen, and, and on and on. If someone lacked the money to be a patriarch, he and his family were usually the patrons or clients of the patriarch who they worked for. Even in that day, independent tradesmen and day laborers often had informal ties to a larger household. And so, When the the scriptures, 114 times this word is used in the New Testament, the whole way of thinking in a New Testament sense with this word is way beyond just your kids in your home. The household, the oikos, was the people that you regularly came in contact with. Um, for them, it was people that worked for them, they did business with. It, it carries this broader connotation. Um, Tom Rainer, uh actually, uh, who does a lot of research and stuff like this, um, t- would say that each of us lives at the intersection of four worlds. We live at the intersection of four worlds. The bi- biological world, which is our, our family. Uh, the vocational world, which is our work, uh, the geographical world, which is our, our neighbors, um, and the volitional world, which is, uh, I put the word, choice activity, uh, those hobbies that we have, those things that we uh, do that we have these little communities of people that we interact with in those uh, activities. Um, I think church, obviously, would, would fit into that um, maybe even a little bit into the geographical world, but all of us are intersecting with uh, people in these four different worlds. Jesus, um, in Mark five nineteen, after he had uh, uh, done a miraculous deed for for a, a man, he said this: "Go home to your own people." And tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. The word home there is the word oikos. The King James Version actually says, go home to your friends. So it carries the idea Jesus is even thinking is thinking, when I'm telling you to go home, I'm not thinking just your immediate family. I'm thinking about those that you live in daily contact with. Your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers. Go home and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. You see many other passages. Uh, we can see this natural web of relationships which comprised the, the oikoses of the early Christians. And honestly, this became, this became the primary means for the spread of the gospel. This is how a little group of 120 people waiting in an upper room, and as the Holy Spirit came and the church was started, this is how that hundred, a couple hundred years later, it had become such a big phenomenon that even the Roman emperor in that day, under pressure, because it was such a political move for him to do, made... The religion of the the Roman Empire, Christianity. It had exploded that much, and it was through this kind of stuff. The primary vehicle of the spread of the gospel was each and every person's oikos. Michael Green in the book Evangelism in the Early Church. Observes that the new the New Testament Church rigorously adhered to the oikos principle as its primary strategy for the Christian advance. The early Christians knew when the message of faith was heard and demonstrated by family and friends who were known, and the trusted and trusted barriers to when they were known trusted barriers to the gospel was removed and receptivity to the message increased tremendously. You would say, wow, that's an interesting history lesson. But I would tell you it hasn't changed. I want you to look at these numbers. Again, Rayner, who does uh, extensive research um, on this, ways people come to Christ. Ways people come to Christ. A special need, a crisis in their life, uh, loss of a job, and the church helps them and, um, or people reach out to them. One to two percent come to Christ through that. Walk in. People walk into our doors. Um, about two to three percent people come. They just come, walk into a church, and find Christ through being a part uh, of, of, of the community here. A pastor, five to six percent. Five to six percent people come to Christ through the work of a pastor. Visitation, visiting somebody when they're sick, flicked it down, 1% to 2%. Sunday school, 4 to 5%. Inviting someone, I would say this is even carries the idea of maybe a small group, uh, a smaller group of believers studying the Bible and, and living life together, 4 to 5%. A crusade, an evangelistic crusade. Not even a percent of people who come to Christ come through a crusade. A church program, 2 to 3%. Look at that last number. Ways people come to Christ, a friend or relative. 75 to 90% people find faith because of a friend or a relative. That is an astounding amount. Um, This principle hasn't changed since the New Testament. It's what caused the church to explode in the first century, in the second century, and it is what continues to be the number one way that people come to know Christ is through a friend or a relative. Our picture of seeing people come to Jesus is is so often too big, I think. Uh, we, We do think in terms of church programming or missions or special emphasis and People do things like crusades or revivals or different type things. And we think that those are primary ways of of seeing people come to Christ. When all along, um, it has always been your influence, your testimony, your faith lived out that attracts people to the life-saving message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 75 to 90%. Um, I love what Andy Stanley says uh, along these lines because we think uh, so often, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. So often we think, well, it's just too big, too much. God, there's no way I could. And so uh, we think with missions or other projects, I just can't. There's just too big. There's too many people. It's overwhelming. When simply we need to start thinking small. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. And so this is the oikos principle I want to just kind of talk about. Um, If oikos means extended household. If it impacts those four worlds that we live in. Biological, uh, vocational, vocational. Volitional and geographical. These are the people that we live with each and every day. Although I kind of wonder now in today's society about the geographical. How many of you even know your neighbors? It's amazing, isn't it? Um, how I talk to people and, and having moved into a new neighborhood, how meeting the, the, the neighbors that I have, how sometimes I've even lived in places and I didn't really even know my neighbors. Um, it's so easy to just open the garage door and pull in and close the garage door and walk into your house, right? Um, and that's, that's, that's something they talk about in our culture now. We don't even know the people we live next to. So it's a little bit of a different feel. I would say as Christian people and understanding this oikos principle that we would be very intentional about getting to know our neighbors, just developing, building a relationship with them. It's an opportunity. They're a part of that, uh, that cross-section of, of things that we live in. So the Oikos principle, it is the most natural and common environment for evangelism to occur. The most natural and common ev- uh, uh, way environment for evangelism to occur is with these people that you see that you live with, that you work with, that you hang out with, that you, this is the most natural way. And I would say this, they've done a lot of studies on this, that a group of 8 to 15 people with whom you share life most closely is your sphere of influence. About all of us, or all of us, they've done extensive study on this, all of us right now have a tremendous amount of influence or impact in eight to 15 people's lives right now. You might say, oh, that's not me. I'm pretty private baloney. You, if you really began to think about it, if you really realized the influence that you have in people's lives, you would realize that about eight to 15, obviously this is, this is, um, not a perfect science, but over the studies they've done, they would say that this is true. Um, now that eight to 15 changes, um, you, you change jobs, you change hobbies, you change locations. Uh, normally family stays the same, right? Um, some of you might not be too thrilled about that. But, um, but eight to 15 people understanding that I influence around this number of people. I have significant influence in their lives. The third thing is that these are the people for whom God wants to prepare you to become an ideal instrument of his grace. These, I, these eight to 15 people might be your neighbors, your coworkers. Maybe it's the local barista, uh, which we got some new baristas now every Sunday, right? We need to give them like an official title or something, like barista, put them in through training. I, I don't know. Uh, the grocery store clerk, parents on your kids' sports teams. I found this to be so true. Uh, in Indiana, especially the last couple of years, uh, Keegan would play on these teams, um, basketball and, and, and baseball, and, and they would, we'd play in tournaments together and travel some. These people became somebody I saw every weekend, so to speak. I really began to develop relationships with them. They were, some of them were becoming, were moving into my oikos they were becoming, as I developed a relationship with them, it became an opportunity for me to live my faith and to proclaim my faith even into their lives. So it's, it's, it, it could be anywhere. Um, uh, a business associate, a mechanic, a waiter at your favorite restaurant, uh, I don't know, the dog groomer, or gardener, or our carpool buddy, I don't know, but there are 8 to 15 people that have trusted you that have opened themselves up to some kind of relationship with you that have become a part of your oikos. And so as I was thinking about this and wanting to share this, because I believe that that Jesus understood this principle very clearly, did he not? Because he grabbed 12 guys right in the middle of 8 to 15, right? And he decided the the primary way that he was going to create uh, the vehicle for his church, when he left, was to pour into eight to, or twelve guys uh, and and really impart who he was, what he was about, all that is in the gospel into their lives, because he understood this Oikos principle. And um, I'm thinking about this and believing that it truly is what we need to, to think about. We need to understand. And um, I really think there is a passage of scripture that really helps us to sink our teeth into how this happens. Um, I think this passage kind of can outline how to reach our Oikos. Um and I think there's three different parts with this passage. We're just going to work in this passage for 3 weeks um starting today. Um th- to look at this and we, I've kind of coined it this way. Uh this week is be it, next week will be live it, and the third week will be do it. Be it, live it and do it. Just a little short, something you can bite on. Hopefully you can remember. But it's this passage found in Second Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 obviously if you remember the context of 2 Corinthians it's written by the Apostle Paul it's the book that he's really writing uh, as a defense of the fact that he truly is God's Apostle the Corinthian church man they, they were very talented very charismatic type church a lot of problems and they were also attracted to a lot of different things not unlike our culture today they were attracted to large personalities they were attracted Attracted to charismatic people, and so when Paul started the church and he left, they began to have people minister in their group that were they were charismatic, some of them were wealthy, and the Corinthians looked at wealth as like a sign of god 's favor um, or as, as something that they should follow, and all the while they began to doubt who Paul really was was he truly god 's message because Paul himself admits guys. I wasn't that impressive. I wasn't that impressive to look at. I wasn't that impressive to listen to. And now you've got people that are all that and a bag of chips. And you're beginning to wonder, uh, well, really, Paul? And he writes this book. Really, it's not the second letter to, to the Corinthians. He wrote in the, But he writes this book to the, or this letter to the Corinthians to defend who he was. And in doing so, he shares some really powerful myths stuff that we can sink into. I would say that it's not a book as much as instruction and in how to live your daily life as it is what to do with your life. What to do with your life. Very missional book. And tucked in there is this powerful passage. Now, really, this part is verse 11 through verse 21. Um, but I'm going to pick up at verse 16 for, for what we want to look at for the next three weeks. And, um, but I would share with you that when he starts, when he shifts gears in his letter and he, he moves to this part of his letter, he's talking about the fact that Christ's love has compelled him to persuade men that Christ has died for all. In fact, he uses a phrase in there, he says... Um, <clears throat> Uh, if we are out of our mind, it is for the sake of God. And the way that is written is he says, listen, I am so wrapped up in the fact that God has literally done this thing in Christ Jesus that sometimes I feel like I'm I'm out of my mind I'm willing to do something crazy I'm willing to be like out there just to try to proclaim and persuade men that Jesus Christ died for all Jesus Christ is the answer that you need and so that is what he's he has begun to write about that Christ's love has compelled him in such a way that he's he's almost crazy about this I need to share I need to let people people know. I, I realize that my whole, my whole reason for being is to share this love of Jesus Christ and the hope of the gospel in them. And so at verse, when we pick it up at verse 16, we read this. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We regard no one from a worldly point of view. You see, Paul has ceased to make superficial personal judgments, a worldly point of view, based on external type things. He um, wasn't, his past, he had, he had viewed people from, were you Jew or were you a Gentile? Were you, what, where did you come from? What's your race? Uh, He didn't view people from how closely did you follow the law or didn't you? Were you a Pharisee or this or that? He said, now I have ceased. That's a worldly point of view, external appearances. Um, You see, especially the Jew and Gentile distinction was far less important for him than the Christian unbeliever distinction. I believe that's how you and I um, really should approach those people that we're in relationship with. Not from an external appearance. Where did you come from? What do you do? Um, how good are you at that? It's always everybody that is, a of our, that is a part of our oikos, we are always thinking in one term. Are they a believer? Are they connected To Jesus Christ. That's how Paul looks at every one of his relationships. The big deal is, does this people know Jesus Christ? Judging by mere appearances, I mean, Jesus was a total failure, right? A Messiah rejected by his people, um, delivered up by them for crucifixion. Uh, From the world's point of view, Jesus was either a tragic or ridiculous figure. But we understood that the cross was the keystone of his complete success and the gospel success. And so the way we look at people is not through external appearances, where they're from, what they have, how good they are. Out there. We are looking at people through one lens. Are they connected to Jesus Christ? I'm gonna ask you for a moment, do you do that with your the relationships you have? Do you, do you does that what, inside as you think about those people, as you interact with them, as you develop relationships with them? Is that at the core of your hope or your desire for their life or what, how you view them? Is it, are they connected to Jesus Christ? He says, I don't, I'm no longer thinking of people from a worldly point of view. And he goes on with this. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. I would say, and this is what Ken's going to talk about next week, the key to influencing our oikos and helping them to see Jesus is the new life that we are living in Jesus. I'm always reminded when I read these verses of that phrase that uh, DC Talk recorded before they uh, did, uh, I can't remember the song they did. They, 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 They recorded a preacher saying this. The single greatest cause of atheism in the world today is people who claim Jesus with their lips and deny him with their lifestyle. It is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. So we're going to talk about that next week. Okay, so I have an oikos. This is primarily the way that God is going to use me or wants to use me into spreading his gospel, sharing the faith, seeing people find him. But the, no, one of the biggest things is I've got to be in Christ. I've got to be living this baby out. I have got to be a new creation where old things are passing away and behold, all things are becoming new. And then he goes into this, what I want to look at this morning for just a minute. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed. Are you hearing these words? He's gave us a ministry. He's committed to us a message. And it's all around this one word. Reconciliation. Five times it's used in these verses. It's this idea of we are called to share the reconciling love of Jesus Christ. The way I look at my oikos is I think of them, are they connected to Jesus? And the way that I am going to share his love, be his love, I'm gonna live it out, but I'm also going to always understand it in the terms of reconciliation. Reconciliation assumes things like lost and needing to be found, broken needing to be healed it's it's reconciliation it The whole process of being reconciled to someone involves forgiveness. It involves love. It it involves mercy. And my deal is I have been called, I have been given this ministry. That word ministry is the same word that uh, it's used of a waiter at a table, right? Um, Who waits on our needs. who Who is, have you ever, you know, you go to a restaurant. A good waiter or waitress is always thinking about what do they need next? I am here to serve them, um, to help them. That You know, the glass is empty, I'm filling it. The food, I'm bringing it out timely. I'm, I'm always thinking about how I can serve them, that we have been given this kind of service to bring reconciliation, the message, the word of reconciliation into people's lives. I am waiting. I am looking. I am seeing that at every turn how can I share the message and show the message. You wanna know what you desperately need is to be connected to Jesus Christ and that comes because God is a reconciling God. He is a loving God. He is a God who has moved toward us and provided a way for us. I, I think you, would, I think you would, uh, would say that so often Christians have been represented by things of what we're against, right? You've heard that, you've seen that. Uh, Things like the Ten Commandments have been our calling card. Honestly, sometimes I think people, when they hear I'm a pastor, I think they see Ten Commandments above my head or something. You know? Um, People see us and so often think of rules and laws. We've communicated that so often when really, our ministry, our message is a message of love, mercy, and hope. Reconcile. God wants to be reconciled to you. Yes, that obviously implies that they're lost. They're broken. They need something. They need hope. But our word is reconciliation. In fact, listen to this. We, verse 20, we are therefore what? Christ's ambassadors. As though, this is amazing, this phrase to me Is one of the most startling in all the New Testament, as though God were making his appeal through us. (laughs) Wow. We're it. We are the big way that God, obviously, God is working through his spirit in so many ways. But we really, he looks at us as, you are, you are my ambassador. You understand the whole concept, right? You go to a different country. You represent the United States in, uh, in a different country. Man, what you say, how you act, it all reflects on the country that you're representing. That's who we are. We are Christ's ambassadors. We are, we, literally this word, uh, his appeal is, it's a word like beg. It's a word, it's, it's a word that carries with it um, uh, uh, intense pleading that we are his ambassadors and our big deal is, man, I just want to see my oikos reconciled to God. Do you you have that identity today? Do you walk around understanding that I am Christ's ambassador as though God is making his appeal through us? I'm the, can we go to the courtroom side? I'm the attorney defending this kind of deal. That's the identity he wants us to have, to live with each and every day. I mean, identity is so crucial. How we see ourselves, um, I could talk for a while, I'm not going to, makes a huge difference. I I, I was interested, I read something about Tiger Woods. Um, Everybody knows who Tiger Woods is, dominant golfer. 264 weeks is number one. Um, But he's gotten hurt, right? And literally, uh, in in a magazine last December, here's what uh, Woods said himself. He said he was struggling to find his identity after his third back surgery. Woods told reporters, there is really nothing I can look forward to. I am really good at playing video games now. That's basically how I pass a lot of my time. Isn't that just mind-boggling to you that somebody that wealthy plays video games? His identity is completely wrapped up in him as a golfer. And when that is taken away, he's lost. He's playing video games now. Uh, as uh, I just, anyway, couldn't he do a lot of stuff with his money to help a lot of people instead of playing video games? This is my question. But you see, identity is so powerful. And when we have it, we have so much purpose. When we lose it, we're playing video games for a living, right? Or for a life. And I'm telling you that what Paul is trying to help us understand is take assume the identity you are christ's ambassador and so i would say that if i if i have an oikos i have people in my life through these intersections these four intersections in my life that i have tremendous influence in And God has called me as a Christian to recognize who these people are and to live out my faith as a new creature in Christ Jesus. He also wants me to assume the identity that I am Christ's ambassador in their life. I represent who God is, how he feels, what he thinks, how he acts to them. They understand God through me. I'm an ambassador. And so I would simply say today, be it, embrace your identity as Christ's representative. Once you assume an identity, it begins to influence how you think and how you act. And this is how God sees you, as his representative, as his agent, as his ambassador. Let's pray. Father. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to look into your word. Uh, Thank you for uh, this dynamic of the way that you've set up life. Every one of us can do this. Uh, we all make relationships. We all have good relationships. We have developing relationships. And Lord, you, you didn't call people to have, uh, the, only, the, on, the, on, the only people that can reach people for Christ is those who are, have a, a huge personality or, uh, or speak or teach in a certain way. Or, no, the way it's always been is that uh, we lead people to Christ through our friendship through our relationships that we have with people, they see us, they observe our life, they sense our love, and they hear the words that we speak about you, your love, the hope that's in you, and they come to Christ. So Lord, help us to embrace the fact that we are your representative. Help us to be your ambassadors. Help us every day when we get up and look in that mirror, so to speak, that all everything else that we see and all that we're thinking about, one of the things that becomes a part of our identity is I also today am going to represent you, Lord, to my friends, my family, my coworkers, my oikos. Help us to embrace that, Lord. Help it to be a part of our identity. Thank you, Lord, for these people. Uh, I just, I love being a part of this community. Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us to embrace this identity and to see our oikos and to allow you to help us in the right time, in the right way, to be able to communicate your love that you have for all people. We pray this in Jesus' name and for your sake. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Have a great week. Have a great Sunday.